You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good for me. Um, we will be, as Jake said, in the book of Luke, still in chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, you can find your way there. If you want to follow along on the app, you can open the notes section of the app. But uh, I was reminded last night in a text exchange with my mom just how human pastors are. We know how human we are, or we ought to know how human we are. Um, and I thought about that a lot last, last night, uh, not only our text exchange, but my own failings as a pastor, my own failings here um, as a pastor. And I, I have to tell you, it's, um, it's good for my soul to be with you. If you've been in smaller settings with me, you've heard me say, or maybe I've said in here, uh, that all of us have Sundays where uh, we don't want to go to church. You can amp that up for pastors because we have Sundays where uh, not only maybe do we not want to go to church, but we don't feel that we have what we should have for you uh, that morning. And I think that's how I drove in this morning and spent a lot of my morning uh, reminding myself of the sufficiency of God's word in prayer and not so much of me as his messenger. So I'm grateful for you being here. I always leave better for having been with you, worshiped with you, and been under uh, the instruction and encouragement of God's word with you. In 2009, 2009, Sharon and I uh, celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. We were living in Southern California, and we decided to do that thing that some of you have done, where a friend told us about a, uh, a timeshare uh, experience with Marriott, where they would give you a few nights, and you had to listen to their spiel which was very good, and it was their gamble that if they gave you these nights at this great resort and you came to listen to their spiel, which was required, that you would end up buying into uh, the timeshare, though they uh, made very clear that was not necessary, right? Just as a, as a corporation, those nights were their gift to us for coming and just listening. So we decided to take them up on that offer. We went to Newport Beach um, and we had decided ahead of time we absolutely would not respond to the offer. And we didn't. I don't want you to get all excited uh, to hear my failure. Had I gone alone, I would be the proud owner today of a Marriott timeshare. <laughs> but I did not go alone, and I was not willing to deal with the wrath of my wife, who has no problem saying no to any offers. Uh, we sat there, and by the end of it, I could see what Sharon couldn't see, how magnificent this opportunity could be for our lives. But she just reached over and squeezed my knee as if to say, this is the beginning of the pain you'll feel <laughs> if you not only respond to this, but don't get us out of here as quickly as possible. So we left. We didn't respond. We had a high-ho time and went back home without... Uh, any monthly payments going to Marriott. But I will say, that was not very significant, but how we come to listen to God's word is extremely significant. If you were here last week or you listened to the message last week, we saw Jesus speaking specifically about that, and he continues on in the passage that we'll see this morning. And anytime our Lord drills down and stays a while on a message... It would do us good to listen and to be responsive and to be prayerful in how we hear. I don't know how you intended to hear God's word this morning, but I hope it will not be how Sharon and I listened to the Marriott pitch because unlike them, where it was very hard for me not to say yes, when you and I choose uh, intentionally to listen just as we listen week in, week out with no intention of doing anything with what we hear. God rarely sees fit to overcome that in any significant way. All right, let's pick up our text in Luke chapter eight. If you uh, were here last member or if you weren't uh, last week, 
I want to remind you that Jesus has just given us the the parable of the sower, or rather the parable of the, the seed and the soil, where Jesus described the word of God going out, going out equal in power and effectiveness, but landing on different kinds of soil. And I told you last week that no matter who you were, no matter what age you were last week, no matter where you were in your life, what your season of life was, you and I found ourselves in one of those kinds of soils. And what Jesus was saying there was, be very careful how you approach the word of God. Ask God to help your heart and your mind be soft soil. And Jesus goes on really with this same theme in a way that I don't think I had quite understood the way that I probably should have Uh, even though I've preached and taught it before until studying through it again this week. Let's look at verse 16, and we'll read chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 16 uh, through verse 21. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and ask that you, in your goodness and your mercy, your kindness to us, would open our hearts and minds to your word this morning. God, draw near to us and enable us to listen with soft and responsive hearts, God. I pray that you would speak collectively to us as a church this morning and individually to us, wherever we are with you. God, I acknowledge that throughout this room and those watching online, Lord, we're in many different places this morning. Some of us are hurting. Some of us are angry. Some of us feel unseen and insignificant. God, some are wrestling with guilt and shame. Father, many of us are just having another morning. Lord, I pray and I plead with you that you'll break through whatever the circumstances are And be to us, God, in your greatness and your nearness, all that we need. Father, I confess this morning that no matter where we are or where we've been, what we've done or what's been done to us, your grace, your love, the fullness of your forgiveness and new life in you is available to us through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. All right, I want to start out this morning and just... Uh, just confess that what Jesus is getting into here is the, is the subject of life in Christ. And life in Christ, particularly as it relates to uh, the word and the witness of Christ. We see right out of the gate here that life in Christ requires listening and responding to God's word. Life in Christ requires listening and responding to God's word. Now, this is never more dangerous than it is for those of us who sit under God's word week in and week out, week in and week out, because we can become a bit desensitized to it. We can become simply hearers and not doers of the word, as Jesus warns us about again and again and again. Now, in times uh, past when you've heard this little saying about a lamp on a stand, uh, you've probably often heard it taught or presented in an uh, evangelistic kind of mode. 
You're not to take what God gives you and to hide it, but you're uh, to use your light to shine before others. And that is certainly true, though I would argue this morning that that is not the context here. That in light of what Jesus is saying, that's not exactly what he's talking about. Though that's true, it is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about himself and his own message. Following the parable of the sower, the seeds, and the soil, and his statements on teaching and parables, that some, though seeing, will not see, and some, though hearing, will not hear. He's talking about himself and his teaching as the light and the purpose of his life and his teaching in your life and in those who hear. Daryl Bach, New Testament scholar who has this, a massive two-volume work on the Gospel of Luke. I think it's around 16 or 1,700 pages in total. Says this, that Jesus' teaching is light. It makes the way of God available and each person is to choose how to respond to it. Seeing the light means being open and responsive to God's word. If the light is hidden... It is because the soil on which it falls, mixing metaphors there as Jesus does here between the farmer and the homemaker with the lamp. If it is hidden, it is so because of the soil on which it falls, not because the light is unavailable. Look at what Jesus says here carefully in verse 16. Following verse 15, where he says, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. He says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that, now don't miss this, so that those who come in can see. This is, in a sense, an invitation again to Jesus, from Jesus to us, to hear his words, listen to his words, and come in that we might both see the light and see by means of the light everything else around us as it truly is. Part of what Jesus is saying here following his comments about teaching in parables, as I quoted earlier, that those hearing uh, may not hear and those seeing may not see, is that in a sense, he's not trying to hide stuff from his listeners. When the word of God is preached, God's not trying to simply blind people, but he is to have it preached in a way that only those who are responsive Only those who are truly listening and willing to come in are going to see the light and see everything else by way of the light. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek here when Jesus says, anyone who lights a lamp and hides it, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay pot or puts it under the bed. Of course you're not going to put it under the bed. Beds in their day, like beds in our day, were made with all kinds of flammable things. Some of you have raised children Some of you are still in the process of that and not sure if you'll make it out. Your kids reach a certain age where they want, especially if you have daughters, candles in their rooms. And it's a terrifying thing as a parent when you first start saying yes to that because it is not an uncommon experience to find your teenager has left the dwelling and that candle is still going. It may have been going for seven days. And it may be sitting somewhere safe, or it may be on a paper plate with toilet paper piled up around it. It could be anywhere. And Jesus is just simply saying the purpose of light, as all of his listeners know, is to be seen and to be used in order to see. And Jesus is saying any any other approach to his words, any other approach to his person, then coming as one who wants to see the light that is given us in Christ and by that light to see ourselves clearly, God the Father clearly, and our word and our world clearly is in a sense to to take a lamp that, that has been put out before us in the word of God and to stick it in a jar or put it under 
a mattress instead of receiving it as it was intended to be given to us. As it was intended to be given to us. Now let's look at verse 17 and I'll try not to muddy the waters here too much for you. Um, for nothing, uh, for there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Now, obviously this is true in a sense of the final day, that, that great day of judgment. But again, contextually, this is not where Jesus is going. Jesus is not talking about the last day or the day of judgment here. I think that this has got to be understood as a word of instruction concerning the nature of the proclamation of the gospel. That's where Jesus is. That's what he's thinking about. That's what he's teaching. And part of what he says as uh, it relates to light is light not only illumines, light also exposes. Light also exposes. The focus here is on the evaluation and authoritative function of Jesus' teaching, which exposes our thoughts and the true conditions of our hearts. The more that I hear the word of God and fail to do anything with it, the more the truth of who I am before God becomes evident to all around me, certainly to God himself who knew anyway in the beginning. Jesus is saying, the light of my teaching not only illuminates God the Father, the word around you, your own soul, but it exposes you. New Testament scholar Joel Green puts it this way. Jesus argues here that how one has heard the word of God cannot be hidden, but eventually will manifest itself, either in practices appropriate to God's people, like we saw outlined in chapter six with the, the, the parable of the builders uh, who build their life on the word of God or simply hear it and walk away and summarize so clearly as we just read in chapter eight, verse 15, or in our failure to do so. Jesus argues here that the one who has heard the word of God, how the one has heard the word of God cannot be hidden, but eventually will manifest itself either in practices appropriate to God's people or in the failure to do so. Bach says God's standard will be maintained, revealed, and one day executed fully. So beware of how you respond to the message. Jesus is saying the more that we hear, the more the hearing of God's truth, of his word, of the light that is in Christ and is Christ himself reveals the truth about who we are. Reveals the truth about how it is that we're hearing God's word. Who we are will be made known. What's going on in our hearts and minds will become evident in time. Because again, the personal work of Christ not just illuminates, but evaluates and exposes. Evaluates and exposes. All of that, I would just, I would submit to you for your, uh, for your thoughtful processing and prayerful evaluation under the heading that life in Christ requires listening and responding to the word of God. Always the question in our minds is, Lord, what would you have me do with this? And if we're listening as the gospel message is going out, God is always speaking to us. He's always revealing things to us. He's always trying to nudge us to deeper discipleship, which leads, which leads me to a second obvious truth here that life in Christ is never stationary. Never, ever stationary, right? We never go through days or weeks where we're neither growing closer to Christ or drifting further from Christ. We are always doing one of those. It's sort of like fitness, a day never passes where you're not either getting more physically fit or less physically fit. In fact, sometimes it's hours. I'm at the age now where a good amount of time in a chair means that I must stand up and first stretch before I try to run. There was a time where I could sit in a chair all day and jump out in a dead sprint. But if I do that now, I'm going to tear one of my legs off. It's amazing to me to stand up and the top half of me is ready to go. 
But sometimes the bottom half is still seated in its mind. Life is a funny thing that way, right? You're in your 20s and everything works well and you're game for anything. Friends come over, ask you to do something. You don't even need to know exactly what it is or if you're coming back. You just head out. You don't take anything with you. No medicine. Not your pillow. I remember the first time a friend showed up to our house to spend a couple nights with us and he brought his pillow and I was like, bro, we are not there yet, right? We're not at the point where you should travel with your own pillow. Did you bring cream or something like that to put on your sores? Right? But you get in your 30s and you begin to have responsibilities. You're like, well, how late's it gonna be, right? I don't know, I've got work in the morning. I'm not sure, let me ask my husband, let me ask my wife, which is a way of saying, let me get permission to go play if we'll not be out very long. You get to your 40s, you're like, maybe, but I'm going to drive because <laughs> I want to leave when I want to leave. You get to your 50s and it's really all over then. You just start sliding down toward dinner at 4.30 or 5 and then Matlock. This is how life goes. And it goes for us all that way. If you're in your 20s, you just wait. One day, you'll remember that I said this. You'll jump up to run, having sat for a long time, and fall right down. And I want you to know that wherever I might be in my soul, I'm laughing at you. <laughs> Our life in Christ is not stationary. Look what Jesus says here in verse 18. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of the nature of the light that I give in my teaching, of the light that is provided to us in the word of God. Be careful how you listen. And then he says, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. Now, this is not a difficult concept. I'll, I'll lay it out um, kind of at the kindergarten level, and then we'll walk through it spiritually. But think of this just in terms of how the world works. Jesus is simply stating something that, that is in fact an observable truth. How many of you have maybe a musical instrument in your home somewhere that at one time you could play a little bit? But now, unless you want to embarrass yourself, it simply stays where it is, right? You've got a saxophone or your mom made you take piano lessons. I mean, how many of us did our moms make take piano lessons, and we took it, and we can't play anything at all now. The little bit of knowledge or skill that we once had has been taken. It is gone. This happens to us muscularly. This happens to us intellectually. You ever meet anyone that knows a lot about a particular subject? They seem to be adding to it all the time, all the time right? Every day or two or three, it seems like they're learning something new. They're attuned to it. They're bringing it in. They're putting it to use. They're categorizing it in their minds. Those that don't know a lot and don't care one day don't know anything and still don't care. This is just how the world works. Jesus says how we listen matters. He starts out setting up this issue of, of losing what we do have or gaining more of what we have based on our posture toward it by reminding us, and reminding us really in kind of the wider context of how people have always listened to the prophets, to those speaking a word from God. Some hardly listen at all, right? Lunch is out, they're headed somewhere. What did he say this morning? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't even know why we went. That's how some of us are. Some are intrigued and entertained if it's a good showing, and they were that way with the prophets. They were down as long as it was a good show being put on. Some listen intentionally to find fault. I mean, we know this, don't we? Some of us know people like this. They never listen to anything except with a posture to critique and criticize and find fault. And yet some others, by God's mercy and their responsiveness and tenderness, listen prayerfully, seeking to hear God's voice and put his instruction into practice. Again, we see those people described by Jesus in chapter 6 and verse 15 of this chapter. What Jesus is telling us here in the latter part of verse 18 is basically 
it could be said this way, that church is a very dangerous game to play if you have no intention of following Jesus. It's like people that want to play house, but they have no intention of committing to one another in a lifelong covenant relationship of marriage. They're playing with a very, very powerful and dangerous thing when they simply court it that way. Every time, do you, do you realize that every time, every time you hear the gospel and you resist it, you make it harder to hear it and respond to it next time. There's a realization here that is given to us from Genesis to Revelation that we ought not harden our hearts as the author of Hebrews says, reaching back to the Old Testament text. When we hear the word of God, but be responsive, be responsive. One New Testament commentator said it like this. Those who respond submissively and obediently to the word continue to get more spiritual blessing and truth. While those who do not receive the word and put it into practice eventually lose whatever spiritual sensitivity and blessing they possessed. Proverbs 9, 9, the author of Proverbs puts it this way in verse 9 of chapter 9. Instruct the wise, instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. Now, the implication is, by contrast, that if you teach the unwise, they do not become wiser. And if you teach the unrighteous, they will not add it to their learning. They will not add it to their learning. Whoever gains knowledge and puts it into practice, spiritually speaking, will be given more. Jesus says, this is how it works. This is how it works. Whoever listens without regard for living out what they're hearing, even the little bit of spirituality or spiritual sensitivity that they may have will be taken from them. This is a sobering statement from our Lord. Because should that be taken, we, we're not in the place just to drum up spiritual sensitivity in our lives. We're dependent upon the goodness and the grace of God for that. There's a, a basic truth here that the way to grow is to obey what you know. The way to grow is to obey what you know. Christian depth um, I, I have this bubbling desire growing in me to do a message or maybe a series on what it means to be deep because that's used a lot in church circles. Uh, and I think in all kinds of various uh, inadequate and just wrong ways. But at the very basis level, what it means to be deep as a Christian is to be obedient to the word of God and delightfully so. The way to grow is to obey what you know. It's not so much about amount or accumulation as it is action, as it is action. All of us have known probably people, well, that's a generous statement. Many of us have known people who knew more Bible than we did, who were meaner, and we knew people who knew less Bible than us and seemed to have been more changed by what they did know. I submit to you that the difference in those two individuals and sometimes even in ourselves is in their glad submission to the word of God. Not just to hear it, but to say whether or not it makes sense to me, whether or not it feels right in a given moment, whether or not it's what I want to do, God, help me put this into action. God, help me forgive when I don't want to forgive. God, help me to release bitterness and rancor when I don't want to do that. God, help me love people who are naturally unlovely to me. God, help me be generous financially as a giver in ways that, that don't seem to make sense to me and don't come naturally for me. And on and on and on we could go. Finally, when you look at this passage, we see that life in Christ restructures our priorities. It restructures our priorities. It requires us listening and responding to the word of God. Life in Christ is never stationary. We're always moving closer or further from him, depending on how we're hearing and responding. And finally, genuine life in Christ always restructures our priorities. Now, th this next passage is unsettling 
uh, and it is uh, wildly unreflected in modern evangelical Christianity, at least in our context in the United States. Jesus here, as he's teaching, uh, we find Luke telling us that his mother and brothers come to see him. But they're not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, hey, your mom and your brothers, they're here. They want to see you. And he replies to them, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Do you hear the centrality? Are you listening and receiving the centrality in Jesus' own thinking to hearing and putting into practice the word of God? It continues to supersede everything in the life of a disciple. Now, what's, what's the progression here? How does this fit? What's going on? Well, if you look back as we did in verse 15 of chapter 8, we see that this is the only place that we can be with confidence before God when it comes to hearing the word of the Lord. As people who hear it, retain it, persevere in it, and by that perseverance through the grace of God, our lives produce a crop, produce fruit. Jesus says, in light of what I've just told you, consider carefully how you listen. Then his mothers and brothers come to see him, and he explains what it means to belong to him and to the new community that he's creating? What's one of the signs that you're listening and you're responding? One of them is that the very center of your values and your priorities is being restructured and realigned by the very words of Jesus himself. Who belongs to the family of God, the kingdom of God? Jesus says it's those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now, Jesus is not anti-family. It's the word of Christ that teaches us to honor our mother and father. It's the word of Christ that teaches husbands to love their wives sacrificially and seek to see them built up in Christ. It's the word of Christ that tells wives to respect and to honor their husbands and seek to build them up in Christ. It's the word of Christ that tells parents to care for and nurture their children and not to exasperate them or wear them out, but to raise them according to the nature that God's given them, knowing that in time, God does a good work. It's Jesus who, from the pain and the estrangement and the cosmic Gravity and humiliation of the cross speaks a word to young John and says, see my mom, see your mom, take care of her. Jesus is not saying that the family's unimportant. He's saying it is not supreme. How many times do we hear people in our culture say, family is everything. That sounds good, but it's terrible theology. And as a Christian, you ought to know that. That's part of what it means to think and to live theologically. You say, hear someone say that, and you don't have to correct them, but you need to say it really isn't everything in your own mind and heart. It is extremely important, but it is not supreme. It is not supreme. Our children one day will give their own accounts before the Lord. We hope and pray, we gather the people of God and the things of God and the, hopefully the practices of our own life around them like kindling, praying and praying and praying that God will light the fire of faith in their own lives. But the day comes when that is between them and the Lord. Marriage we won't even have in heaven. It doesn't mean that it's not important, but it does mean it should not be an idol. Our kids should not be an idol, and sometimes we're on the other side of that, and we need some correction. I um, was watching, uh, JC, our oldest daughter, came home from college this weekend, and we were watching The Voice together, and at least twice in just the first couple of episodes, someone said something like this, I'm here basically to, to take my shot, right? I had kids, and I put my life on hold when I had them, and I put my dreams on hold, and... Uh, you know, and now my kids are older, and now I'm going to fulfill myself. 
That's my version of it, but that's basically it. You've heard it a hundred times. And I told JC last night, I don't like that view of children. I don't like the view of children as just something you deal with until you can get back to all your, your own desires about you and your life. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think it holds up to uh, the weight of history. I don't think it holds up to God's design in the family. There are no doubt some things you should and have to put on hold a little bit as you're raising kids. But to always talk about that as if you just gave up your life while raising kids and then you got it back. First of all, if that's true, you get back a lousy version of it 20 years later. Worn out, hair missing, gray, splotches on your skin. You wake up, you're like, where did that come from? There was nothing there last night, right? Creaks and aches, throwing yourself out while you're sleeping. But what a privilege and a joy and an honor it is to get to love and shape and mold and walk with the children that God has given you that his word says have come into your life as a gift of his grace. So I think we're, we're all over the place, messed up on this family thing. And we can all admit that family's weird. If you can't admit that, you don't have one. Or you are the center of weirdness in yours. And you're the only one in your family that doesn't know that. You're like, well, when Bob comes, it's gonna get freaky. Right? We um, connected a few weeks ago with some uh, distant cousins of Sharon's who came into town and we were at the park talking with them. It was the first time I'd met them. And um, I was talking to uh, the husband and he was sharing. Uh, we came from, come from very different backgrounds. Um, and he was saying, uh, they don't really eat eggs. He said, sometimes when kids or grandkids come in, he said, well, we'll go get some eggs for them. He said, we're, we're really, we're vegetarians. And I told Sharon later, you never think it's going to happen in your own family. <laughs> but it, it does, it can, I warn you now. It's distant, I'm grateful for that. But it can happen. But Jesus teaches us clearly that family is extremely important, but it is not supremely important. Family is extremely important, but it is not supremely important. Jesus redefines ultimately, supremely, eternally the nature of family here. And I find the people that get this the most are the people who come from the most broken, shattered, and torn apart families who find very easily the beauty of brothers and sisters in Christ that come into their life in a way that their natural biological brothers and sisters could never be there. Same with moms, dads, grandparents in the church, loving one another across generations, caring for one another. Jesus was part of a large family. He was the oldest son. If you look at Mark 6, 3, we are aware that Jesus had at least six siblings. He had at least at least two sisters, because they're referred to in the plural. So he had at least two sisters, and he had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude or Judas. Jesus was the oldest. He understood family obligation. He understood family pressure. Right? He understood the needs that come with a family. And as I mentioned already, he cared for his mom, Mary, even in the time of his death. What Jesus is teaching us here is that spiritual relationships supersede physical ones. That the family of faith is inevitably, eternally more significant than the nuclear family. Again, this is not a matter of importance and unimportance, but one of primacy. And for those who have been tasked with God at raising children, what is our deepest desire? That my son will become my brother in Christ. That my daughters will become my sisters in Christ. That my kids will be swept up by the beauty and the power of the gospel as by God's grace they listen and respond in faith and learn to walk on their own as followers of Jesus. People would come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. He'd say, well, come on. They say, well, I've got to bury a relative that just died. And he's like, let the, let the dead bury the dead. Jesus could have what we would call some sharp edges sometimes. 
but he knew where people were. He knew their idols. And can I say to us this morning, he knows our idols. The heart is an amazing little idol factory. And just when you've shut down one line, another line pops up. What are you wrestling with this morning? What are you wrestling with for primacy in your life? Is it your marriage? Is it your kids? Is it your success? Is it your reputation? Is it your legacy? Had an older professor toward the end of his years sitting around uh, a couple of years ago in a doctoral seminar talking about, hey, see, he said, the struggle through your younger years of ministry, and I would say just vocationally with men in life, is about making your mark. What, what, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to accomplish? He said, don't think, don't think that that wrestling ever just stops and you don't have to deal with it because he said, as you age, it becomes legacy. You start thinking about your legacy then and you can obsess about your legacy in a way that's unhealthy. Jesus understands the significance of family, but he wants us to understand again that family, though extremely important, is not supremely important. The best thing that you can be for your family is a man or woman of God. A man or woman of God. Which means there are gonna be times when you have to say no to your family because you're saying yes to Jesus. And you're gonna say no in a way, and you're gonna say no with a frequency that demonstrates the beauty and the glory of Christ. Not in a way that makes them want nothing of Christ. Not in a way that is either so infrequent or so frequent that it either makes no mark on them or it makes a bad mark on them because you're never around. But most of us, that's not our trouble. Most of us, our trouble is, well, I can't, I've got this. I can't, I need to do this. I can't, my kids want to do that. Be careful how you listen and respond to God's word. I want to read two passages finally here with regard to this issue of Jesus and family. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 36, Jesus gets very real with us. And he says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is again one of those examples that requires um, some of the tools of biblical hermeneutics or interpretation because in other places Jesus says, peace I give to you, my peace. I don't give to you peace like the world provides, but a unique peace. But here he says, don't confuse why I've come. Verse 35, pulling out of Micah chapter seven, he says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword for I've come to turn a man against his father a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the gospel must be supreme in our lives. And that supreme allegiance to the gospel can, has, does, and will divide people relationally at times, including within families including within marriages. He cannot like that. We can wish I wouldn't read that. But those are the words of our Lord. In Mark chapter three, verse 20 and 21, verse 20 and 21, we find a little bit more about this picture. It says, Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, uh, you, you may have a, a subscript there, a postscript there that underneath says, or associates. There are some older manuscripts that say associates, but not, we think, the best ones. And then this tends to be um, explained by verses 31 and following when his family then does arrive. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. Anybody ever thought you're just out of your mind because of your commitment to God? This is not the first time with Jesus. Remember, he hauls back as a 12-year-old and hangs out doing his father's 
work. He's listening. He's learning. He's growing. He's talking. He's discussing. As a 12-year-old, his parents come back. And I got to tell you, my parents would have ripped me up. They wouldn't have been able to record in Scripture what had happened. But Jesus says, don't you understand? I, I have to be about my father's work. I have to be. I wasn't trying to disrespect you. I wasn't trying to be disobedient. I'm drawn in to my father's work. If you're living enough for Christ, you're going to have to say some version of that to people at times. This is why my values are what they are. This is why I seem so obsessed with Jesus to you. J.C. Ryle, who you will hear me quote from time to time, I would remind you as a 20th century English preacher and theologian, he started out wanting to be a politician, but didn't have enough money to sustain politics. I guess he didn't have a pack uh, back then, came from a poor family, but in uh, the lack of funding for him to stay in politics, God called him out of that, just as he called Martin Lloyd-Jones out of medicine to the Christian ministry, and specifically, as we see most of the time throughout history, to the ministry of preaching, teaching, writing. J.C. Raw became a, a prolific preacher, teacher, and writer. Of the, did I say 20th century? Of the 19th century. Whatever I said, it was the 1800s, the 19th century. So that's when Ryle lived. I know that you're all edified and warm to know that. He wrote this with regard to this passage in his expositional work on the Gospel of Luke. And I read this to you as our band begins to make their way back up here and out on the stage and prepares to set up and lead us in a time of response and reflection. Listen to the words of Ryle, written in the late 19th century in London. The person who hears the word of God and does it is the true Christian. The one who hears it and does it. They hear the call of God to repent and be converted and they obey it. Now we understand it's not just simply in your own strength, but it's in a cooperation with the working of the Holy Spirit that is granting new life and faith to you. And yet you don't resist. You respond, you repent, you're converted. They cease to do evil and learn to do good. They put off the old man and put on the new. They forsake their own righteousness and confess their need for a savior. Have you done that this morning? Do you do that daily? Put off your own righteousness, your own attempt to make yourself good enough before God, to work hard enough, to pray long enough, to read your Bible enough, to be theologically formed enough, to be well-mannered enough, to not cuss enough. They forsake their own righteousness and confess their need for a Savior. Oh, how we need a Savior. Not just a helper. Not just a renovator, but a Savior. They receive Christ crucified as their only hope. And count all things as loss for the knowledge of Him who is the light and gives the light. They hear the call of God to be holy and obey the call. They strive to mortify, to put to death the deeds of sin and walk after the Spirit. They labor to set aside every hindrance. Have you done that this morning? Are you willing to labor to set aside every hindrance to godly living and to the pursuit of Christ in your life and walk in step with the Spirit. They labor to set aside every hindrance and the sin which so easily hampers them. This, says Ryle, is true, vital Christianity. And men and women who are of this character are truly Christian. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. As I pray, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. 
And though we do this every single Sunday, week in and week out, it ought not be routine or monotonous to us. Financial generosity and even, dare I say it in an American context, financial sacrifice for the health and the mission of the church and the glory of Christ and good of others has marked true Christians from the first century on. Marked us so much that Roman generals and thinkers and pagan philosophists would note how radically generous these little Christs, these followers of the way were. Don't take this time when we receive offering and you put in connection cards demonstrating commitment, placing prayers before your pastoral staff and before God himself, that this is just something like we do at the end. It is one of the ways we listen, respond, obey, and persevere in the word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that in Jesus, light has come. God, thank you that the nature of light is that no amount of darkness can drive it out. That the smallest amount of light sends darkness running for other spaces. Jesus, will you cause your light to shine in the hearts of some this morning? Jesus, will you by your mercy cause your light that is shown in the hearts of some of us already to better illuminate the world around us so that we can see more clearly in ways that we desperately need to ourselves, Lord, before you, others around us, your beauty, your goodness, your work in this world. God bless those who are about to give and those who've given throughout this week. Lord, I pray as your text says, as they respond in obedience to your word in this matter of financial generosity, God, that more indeed would be given to them as they obey in this area. Thank you, God, for being our everything and more. I pray it confidently, humbly, and in personal submission to it in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.